Good morning, everybody. I'm very clear to me that people who show up at eight o'clock for these things want to be smarter than all their colleagues. So congratulations to all of you. So uh, I'm with John Ibbotson. He is one of Canada's best known and most respected journalists and authors. Since arriving in 1999 at the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper, he has served as Washington bureau chief, Ottawa bureau chief, chief political writer, and 2000, since 2015, writer at large. He's the writer at large. I'm the editor at large. I'm not totally sure what the difference is. He is the author of numerous books, but as you just heard, the primary reason we have him here is because he co-authored a book several years ago called Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. And let's face it, I don't think anybody can go into any sort of business meeting today and not hear executives decry the difficulty in getting workers. And they're starting to feel like maybe it's not just temporary, like maybe it's going to be permanent. And I think what you'll hear, to, hear today from John is that it very much is permanent. So, John, first of all, welcome to F3. I did want to uh, I did want to note one thing here uh, in the book, which I read, uh, read mostly at 35,000 feet. Uh, while traveling uh, over the, across the pond, uh, you were talking about uh, the difficulty, early contraception in the U.S., and how difficult uh, it was to to get contraception. And you said because of something called the Comstock Laws, which had mostly made contraception illegal. And I'm going to quote here a sentence from the book. Condoms were generally sold only in pharmacies and were kept behind the counters so that the customers had to specifically ask for them a terror to teenage males. You too, huh? Yep. Uh, <laughs> both the both buying and selling because I actually worked in a in a uh, pharmacy, so I got to sell the condoms to terrified teenagers, uh, as well as buy them. Um, I think I bailed and actually gave it to somebody else. I gave the job to somebody else who had more courage than me. But the um, the, the that moment in American and Canadian history, because we both countries. Um, moved to legal contraception at about the same time, marked one of the pivot points in the decline of fertility in the United States and in Canada. And, that, and that's really the, 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 the centerpiece of the book. Um, most people, uh, even today, uh, would, argue, would be believe uh, that the United Nations uh, Population Division is correct in that our population is growing from 7 billion uh, to about 11 billion at the end of the century, but it will start to level off. Uh, and the population growth is a huge problem. Um, the population bomb is straining the resources of the planet, the ability to feed people, the, the stress on the environment. Um, all of these are things that we will have to grapple with in the decades ahead. Uh, but my co-author, Daryl Bricker and I, um, were aware that there was a group of dissident demographers, as they were called, who thought the United Nations was wrong, that population growth was not trending uh, up to 11 billion and would not trend up to 11 billion, and that, in fact, the population of the planet would stabilize at around 9 billion in the middle of the century, and then it would start to go down. It would be the first time in human history the population of the planet would deliberately, not because of famine or war, but deliberately start to go down. And Daryl and I thought this was, this was a pretty important debate, right? Because 11 billion at the end of the century gets you one kind of planet, uh, 9 billion at, in the middle of the century, and then you start to lose people, gets you a very different planet. 
and who, and, and who was right. So we spent a lot of time. We traveled to six different continents. Uh, we were in on university campuses in Seoul, Korea. We were in favelas in Brazil. We were in slums in New Delhi um, and in Nairobi. Uh, we talked to a lot of demographers and statisticians in country to compare what their own numbers were compared to what the United Nations numbers were. And we concluded that, in fact, the UN is wrong and that, indeed, um, the planet's not going to get to 11 billion people. It's only going to get to 9 billion, thereabouts, and it's going to start to go down mid-century. And this is a theoretical issue for a lot of people in a lot of places, but it's a very real issue for, for people in developed countries today because in developed countries, one of two things is happening. Um, either you are bringing in immigrants or your population is going, going into, into decline. There are about two dozen countries in the world now whose population is already in decline. They're losing people every year. Yeah, there's two little population nuggets I like to cite because I always think they're fascinating. Uh, one is Japan, where pretty soon they're, and they may be at this point now, they, they're going to sell more adult diapers than ch children Children's diapers. Children's diapers, yes. And the other one is in China, where not only does the average Chinese child not have a sibling, but the average Chinese child doesn't have a cousin either. Because by now, the one-child policy has been in effect for so long that their parents are likely to be only children. So, you know, you, you can't have cousins if your parents are both right. only children. So just think about that. No siblings, no cousins. We, uh, Empty Planet came out in 2019, and we predicted uh, two huge demographic events. One, by around 2030, uh, the population of China would start to decline. This is a mass, right? This is 1.3 billion people. This is 20% of the planet. If their population starts to decline, then that's, a, that's massively important. And the other thing we predicted was that by 2030, the population of India, which is the other 20% of the planet, would have reached 2.1. 2.1 is the fertility rate at which your population is stable. If your total fertility rate is higher than 2.1, your population grows. If your, population, if your fertility rate is 2.1, your population is stable. If your fertility rate drops below 2.1, your population starts to decline. And we were wrong on both counts. We were wrong about China, and we were wrong about India. But wrong, we, it's going to happen sooner. In that China is losing population now. They lost, the Financial Times had a major report earlier this year that said, the, the Chinese official statistics are that they are stable, but the reality is that their population is already in decline. And India officially reported a fertility rate of 2.1. So there's 40% of the planet where either the population is in decline or the population has reached stability. Well, we had a presentation yesterday, Mr. Leland Miller, talking about Chinese data that's uh, economic data is not believable. When you look at that, these numbers from China, and then you hear China is the next great economic power of the world, you think baloney. I think exactly that. Um, China is set to lose half its population this century. They are set to go from 1.3 billion to about 700 million. And the United States, if it continues to bring in about a million people a year, um, regu regularly or irregularly, uh, will grow its population to about 450 million. So imagine a world in which the Chinese population is not that much larger than the American population, and you have a very different world than the world that we live in today. It's going to be a world in which 
all of the major developed countries are losing population, except for those with strong immigration policies. Um, all the all countries in Europe are, will will be or already are losing population. Um, the developed countries of Eastern Asia, as you mentioned, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, are losing population. And the big countries, um, China, India, uh, Indonesia, uh, Brazil, are either stable or are, they are themselves starting to lose population. And, and, and that will be the reality that we face. Well, let's talk about the politics of this, because you talked about the U.S. rising to 430 million from or 450 million from 330 million. That's not going to become that's not going to happen because of births, uh, as we know, because the, the fertility rate in the U.S. is right hanging around to one, maybe a little less. And the trend is certainly down. Uh, can you really assume rising immigration in the U.S., given that, you know, you, traditionally the sort of chamber of commerce view of things would be more immigration. And the Chamber of Commerce was politically allied with the Republican Party. Today's Republican Party is very hostile to the Chamber of Commerce. In fact, that is a, one of the underreported great schisms, I think, in Washington today, that, that division between today's uh, more populist Republican Party and the Chamber of Commerce. Um, if you've got, you know, d Democrats were always Yes, they like to embrace immigrants as a voting block, but we're always a little bit uncertain about how many you want to let in. The Republicans have clearly gone to don't let them in. Can you really assume that the U.S. is going to have that population increase given a growing hostility to immigration? And I'm not just talking about illegal immigration. Legal immigration numbers are way down as well. Yeah, uh, it is the most important question that your country faces. Uh, my country has a very different approach. It, it happens that yesterday... Uh, as I was flying here, um, the Department of Immigration in uh, Citizenship Immigration Canada announced its uh, intake numbers for the next three years. We're taking in 500,000 immigrants a year. Um, that would mean 5 million immigrants a year if the United States were following Canadian policy. Um, and you, and the reason that Canada is bringing in 500,000 immigrants a year is that, like the United States, our fertility rate is well below 2.1. If you stopped bringing in immigrants of any kind, regular or irregular, tomorrow, your population would start to decline the day after tomorrow. And our population would do the same. We are both aging societies. The boomers like us are getting old. The millennials behind us aren't nearly as many in number. The Gen Zs behind them are even fewer. Um, and that is perpetual. That never changes. Uh, uh, unless you have immigration, your population declines, just as the population of Germany is declining, Russia's declining, Ukraine's declining, all the countries in Eastern Europe. They lose people every single year. You, know, you mentioned Germany. One of the more fascinating things, there was so much focus on Germany taking in so many Syrian refugees. And one of the one of the reasons, supposedly, that Angela Merkel was very open on, on this was not just a humanitarian idea, but the idea like this is a way of getting a one-shot infusion of younger people with higher fertility rates to counter this loss of German uh, German population. And that, okay, maybe the first generation of Syrian refugees who come into Germany will not really be, it'll be tough to assimilate them but the next generation and the next generation who will grow up, who will be born in Germany and only, only know Germany, that they'll become good Germans down the road. 
it, you know, now she took a lot of heat for that. I mean, there were, you know, there were incidents of violence. It didn't always go smoothly. But what do you think about a policy like that? It's the only choice you have. Uh, and, and there are countries that choose to decline, right? South Korea has the world's lowest fertility rate. Uh, it's less than one. So Korea is one full baby short of what it needs uh, to keep its population stable. And the population, green population is declining and it will decline throughout the century. Japan's population is declining and will decline throughout the century. The Japanese and the Koreans are prepared to live with that. Um, they do not want immigrants. They want to keep their culture intact, and they will live with a steadily declining population. And that means endless recession. That means n no growth, uh, declining tax base, declining um, e e economy, uh, you, can, you can fix some of it with robots and artificial intelligence, but you can't fix the consumption part of it. Robots don't buy refrigerators. Um, and they, don't, they don't buy the things that you need to drive an economy. But those countries, um, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, they've also made these decisions. They will live with the decline rather than um, live with uh, the consequences of immigration. Yeah, you, you noticed something in the book that I thought was fascinating. Um... You know, in the, the 80s, I was working for a publication that covered steel and the Japanese steel industry was kicking butt on the U.S. steel industry. And there was all fear of Japan, Japan as a giant economic behemoth. And, you know, and of course, that seems almost quaint now in response. I mean, they've got a strong economy, but still. And you noted that in the whole computer revolution, software, hardware, Japan has not been there. And your point was the computer revolution has been created by younger people and Japan just doesn't have the younger people. So they're nowhere on this. I mean, yes, they still make great electronics and, you know, I, I'm a cyclist and they make great shifters and they do lots of great things, but those are kind of the industries of yesterday and the industries of tomorrow. They're not there. Yeah. You pay a huge price. And if you go back and look at the uh, the young Turks in, in what we now call Silicon Valley, who invented uh, the transistor, invented the silicon chip, invented the integrated circuit, invented the, the computer revolution. M many of them were the children of immigrants. Um, it's that infusion of new ideas that immigrants bring, not just bodies, not just numbers, but creativity, excitement, vitality. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, by the way, and, and you may well be asking yourself, well, why are fertility rates going down? Why is the United States, you're actually now at 1.6. You're half wow. a baby short, according to your latest census of where you need to be. Canada's at 1.4, by the way. Um, why is that happening? And can it be reversed? Um, and the answer is a single word. It's urbanization. When a country urbanizes, uh, when people move from the country into the city, and most people live in cities rather than living in the countryside, um, four things happen. First is a child stops being an asset and becomes liability. On the farm, the child has another pair of hands to work in the fields. In a city, it's just another mouth to feed. The second thing that happens is that women get education. When, you move, when a woman moves from a village or the countryside into a city, she has access to an education system. She has access to libraries. She has access to media. She has access to other women. And urbanization always leads to the education of women. And when women become educated anywhere in the world, there's no example anywhere in the world where this is contradicted. When women become educated, when they have some autonomy, when they have the ability to decide what they want to do with their lives, they decide to have fewer children. And that's the real driver. 
the power of organized religion goes down. Your, the, the, the ability of the priest or the shaman or whoever in a, in a village uh, to demand that everyone gets married young and has kids, it gets replaced by office workers. Right there, your peer is now. When was the last time your office worker said you should get married and have a baby? <laughs> so um, urbanization leads to declining fertility. And in the United States, there were uh, a woman in, 19, in 1800 had seven children. A woman in 1900 had four. A woman in 1980 had two. A woman today has 1.6. So it took about almost two centuries for the United States to bring its fertility rate down below replacement rate. But in the developing world, it's happening in a single generation because urbanization is happening so quickly. The United States, for example, relies on immigration from Latin America, Mexico, and other countries to the south of it. If you actually look at the entire Latin America and Caribbean uh, society combined, they are now at replacement fertility rate. Mexico, Brazil, Venezuela, all these countries are at or below replacement rate. So the actual source of immigrants is going to dry up as well. Canada can claim, and, and we will, we'll take in 500,000 people next year, and that's not going to be a problem. But we're going to have, and you're going to have, a growing challenge in the decades ahead to find immigrants as societies become urbanized and their own fertility rates drop. Now, the U.S. does have an advantage in that historically it has been open to immigrants. And there's always this tendency to look at the current situation as being unique. I mean, there were certainly anti-immigrant pushbacks in the past. Uh, I don't know if it's worse now or, or whatever, but you were based in Washington. You were the chief Washington correspondent for the Globe and Mail. You, so you've got a pretty good finger on American politics. Where do you see this headed? Do you think that the U.S. is going to be in position to, be, to take these immigrants in, which, you know, for all the friction and all the uh, controversy over it, we have done for many, many years? Well, it's, I think it's the most important question that, that uh, the United States faces, um, and, and every country faces it. Um, the, there are four settler societies, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Those are the four countries where the, the, the British government sent um, immigrants to populate those countries. And then those countries afterwards brought in immigrants from other countries as well. Australia and New Zealand are shutting down. Um, after COVID, they've decided they're going to be highly restrictive in the number of immigrants they bring in. Great Britain itself, uh, Brexit, was, was an anti-immigrant reaction, um, a desire to control immigration, to limit the number of people coming into Britain. And I think maybe more, even more significant, but not as well publicized, was the recent vote in Sweden. Sweden, which has always had very open doors to a large degree on humanitarian grounds, and a more right-wing government was elected with anti-immigration policy as a key plank. That's right. Uh, I had a, a vigorous debate with a Swedish journalist a few years ago over this thing. And, and she said that immigration was an essential humanitarian act. And I said, no, it's not. Immigration is completely selfish. Canada does not bring in 500,000 people because we are a nice country. We bring in 500,000 people because we have a shortage of drywallers. We have a shortage of truck drivers. We have a shortage of you name it, and we have a shortage of it. And our immigration policy is specifically geared to bring in immigrants in the areas in which, by the way, trucking is one of them, we have uh, the greatest shortages. If you're a Filipino and you've got a driver's license, Canada wants to hear from you. Right. In the U.S., of course, we have a very large Sikh population that gets behind the wheel of a lot of rigs. 
and and we have a, a large uh, Hindu and Sikh population in Canada as well. In fact, India is the largest source of our uh, of our immigrants now. You either live with the tensions that immigration produces, and there are tensions. We all have to, you know, work at immigrating, integrating immigrants, whether they are coming from India or whether they're coming from uh, Latin America or the Caribbean or or North Africa. We have to work at integrating them, or we have to. Uh, shut the door to them. And if we shut the door to them, then the job shortages you have now are going to get worse. And the tax base that you have now is going to decline. And the struggle that you have to finance your healthcare systems, your education systems, your pensions is only going to grow worse because your tax base is going to shrink. It's basically bring in immigrants or die. Every country in the developed world has that challenge now. An empty planet all has basically nothing more than the numbers to prove it. Is that widely held across the political spectrum in Canada, or is there a Tory movement against immigration the way you had certainly in the UK? No, the the interesting thing is that the, the Conservative Party uh, supports high immigration when uh, uh, we've had, in fact, Brian Mulroney in the 1980s uh, was the Conservative Prime Minister who flung open the doors. Um, Stephen Harper is Conservative Prime Minister from 2006 to 2015, brought immigration to record levels. Um, and then his successor, Justin Trudeau, had brought them even higher than that. There is an all-party consensus in Canada um, that immigration is the only way in which we grow, in which we prosper. Uh, and indeed, there was a poll just uh, last week, uh, an Ang Angus Reid poll, very reputable pollster, that said 70% of Canadians support the current levels of immigration. So we're not gripped with the kind of debate that you are over the value of immigration. And I think the reason is quite simply, we've had so much immigration for so long that we, you can look at it. You can look at Toronto, you can look at Vancouver, and you can look at uh, Montreal or Ottawa and go, if we didn't have these immigrants, these cities would be dying. Um, we need them. And by the way, now that one quarter of all Canadians weren't born in Canada, uh, which, which is a record number. 25% of our population was not born in our country. You couldn't get elected if you opposed immigration because uh, the immigrants are now the core voting bloc in the country. Yeah, the, um, I, I think the polls in the U.S. have started to show more, which is, which is kind of almost counterintuitive, given that an anti-immigration message is really core to one of the two parties' uh, planks. And I do think some of the U.S. polls have shown a growing support of immigration, and it could be because people are getting tired of going down to pick up some food and having a nine-person line just to do something simple. And there maybe I mean, this, this might be wishful thinking on my part. I could be totally wrong. I have no scientific basis for this. But that there is maybe starting to make that connection that the shortage of workers is not just because people are lazy or coming off the pandemic, you know. I, I'm 66, okay? The, the, the biggest three years of the baby boom in the U.S. were 56 through 58. Well, what happened to people who born, were born in 56 last... Uh, what, what happened to them last year? They turned 65. We know what that means. People who were born in 57, they turned 65 this year. We know what that means. Same thing last next year, Medicare. And at that point, that need to hold a job to get yourself with health care disappears. And so I think this is all kind of happening at once. And maybe people are making the connection. I don't know. What do you, what's your view as a Canadian who spent a lot of time in the U.S. of the, the politics of it here? Well, the politics are fraught, obviously. The, 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 the degree of polarization in the United States between uh, Republicans and Democrats, between conservatives and progressives is huge. But 
I'm not here to talk politics. I'm only here to talk demographics. And you're absolutely right. Um, I'm 67. The, uh, in 2030, every baby boomer will be a senior citizen. Um, in Canada, 40% of our doctors retire in the, next, in the course of the next 10 years. 40% of them. So one of two things happens. You either bring in new doctors uh, or you have fewer doctors available to look after all those boomers who are getting sick. Um, and it's, it, it's not a question of ideology. If you believe in low taxes, if you believe in balanced budgets, um, if, if you consider yourself a, a good conservative, you must be pro-immigration. If you're not, um, if you don't accept immigrants, then you can't balance your budget. You can't have low taxes. You can only have escalating taxes to pay for declining quality of services needed to pay for an aging society. Uh, that that's just a demographic reality. And if you're a progressive, and you, you know you believe in public health care, you believe in public education, you believe in um, investments in roads and highways and transportation uh, at the government level, you also have to support immigration because they are the people who will come in and pay the taxes that will support uh, what the, the social agenda that you desire. I don't understand an economic argument that says we can prosper without immigration. Well, well, I mean, that, you know, that economic argument is the is an argument that the economy is always a perpetually static pie. And how are we going to divide it up? It's that, you know, you're talking about and how many years this wasn't in your book, but I remember the statistics several years ago. In 500 years, the last Italian will be born <laughs> because their, their, their rate is like really low in, you know, compared to the rest. 1.3. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything government can do? I mean, beside immigrant, beside trying to encourage immigration, are there other things that governments can do? Do any of these supportive plans, subsidies for having new children, do they, do they work at all? Or are they, are they pushing against the string? The short answer is no. Um, there are things that you can do to encourage women to stay in the workforce. Absolutely. Um, Canada, for example, stay in the workforce and have a baby and have babies. Canada, for example, offers one year of paid maternity leave, um, uh, which, by the way, can be split between the the mother and the father. Um, So you can you you can have a child and, you know, spend your first year with that child and come back. And the law requires that the employer have that job available for you. You can you can have on site daycare. Um, you can have all sorts of subsidies and supports to encourage women to have children and stay in the workforce. Um, those are good things, and you and and governments should do them. Um, but if it's just a question of bribing women to stay home and have kids, which is what Hungary is doing in Hungary, um, don't quote me on this, but I think the number is if you have you're four, in a, you're in a crowd, you're getting quoted. Okay, okay. I'm quoted. <laughs> uh, check this number before you post it on Twitter. Um, I believe if you have four children in Hungary, the state supports are so heavy that you don't need to work anymore. You can basically have an income provided by the government for having children. But there's no evidence yet that it actually encourages women to have children. Because you have to say to yourself, imagine in your own life, in your own family, imagine your your sons and daughters saying, I don't want to have a baby. I would rather uh, stay in the workforce. But the money is so good that I will drop out and have a baby anyway. Yeah. That's not, that just doesn't happen. No, yeah. You can't bribe women to do something they don't want to do, uh, especially you to know, have children. I want to touch on something because we only got two minutes because it's, it's kind of personal to me. 
you know, we talked on the phone and you talked about the point system in the U.S. to bring in more skilled workers. A year ago, almost to the day, we had to put my mother-in-law into assisted living and she's in the memory care unit. And every single worker in there speaks with an accent, except for the head of it, every single one. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm part of the baby boom. I was born in that three-year surge. Hopefully it won't be me, but I'm sure many of us will end up in places like that. Who is going to take care of these people as they move into assisted living, nursing homes, whatever, if we don't open up the doors on immigration? And the people that you would open in, op- open the doors to, are not making it on any point system. These are unskilled workers. So is the, the emphasis on skilled maybe the wrong way to go? Yeah, we, uh, that was a great revelation for Canada as well. We're out of time, so I'll make this my last answer. Um, our point system, we, Canada actually invented the point system. It was created by the Pearson government in the 1960s. And our point system was designed to bring in doctors and engineers and software people and entrepreneurs and others who uh, we thought would um, you know, fill the job uh, shortages. The um, pandemic revealed to us the same thing that it revealed to you. Oh, it's agriculture workers. It's people harvesting our crops. It's personal support workers and long-term care. Uh, it's truckers, uh, it's people in the construction trades. These are where the shortages suddenly loomed when we were forced to close our doors because of the pandemic. Um, and we are in, in the process of retooling the point system to recognize that the, Cana- that the Canadians we need, the Canadians from the Philippines and India and China and, and elsewhere, um, aren't just uh, software engineers. They are the people who will look after us in our long-term care facilities. They are the people who will harvest our crops. Um, and they are the people we're going to have to bring in on an ongoing basis to sustain our society. Uh, it's true in my country, and I strongly suspect it's true in yours as well. All right. We finished right on time. How about that? Oh, uh, three, two, two one, one, and we're right. done. We want to thank John Ivinson for joining us here today at F3. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, John.